just an ordinary girl. I'm your host. My husband calls me babe. My kiddos call me mama, but you can call me Stevie. I'm just an ordinary girl helping listeners find the extraordinary life through the extraordinary God. Welcome back. I know I say this every week, but I just can't express enough how much your listening means to me. I appreciate you choosing this podcast, and if you want to be notified of when a new episode comes out, be sure to subscribe. You can always go back and re-listen or listen to the older episodes anytime you want. And please, 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 just tell a friend about it. It's awesome to have you with us. And that's just about as much self-promotion as I can handle. So let's get started. Last week, I spoke to you about playing defeated. I had tennis on the brain. Well, actually, I think I've had tennis on the brain most of the summer and into our girls' fall season. I sat on the sideline watching tournaments, singles, and doubles matches, but nothing prepared me for the state team competition. We headed to the semifinals and section finals this past week. The nerves and anxiety were so high. I was on pins and needles watching these girls who have done such a fabulous job all season Lay it out all on the courts. Now, in a team competition, the team has to win four or more matches for their team to advance. In the semifinals, we won five, but we faced our nemesis for that sectional title. The coach mixed up the lineup, put some of our single players in doubles and vice versa. Now, this threw off the other team, the team that has beat us three times already this year, and it rejuvenated some of our players and scared the tar out of others. We had a young lady playing number two singles who has never played above four singles before. She was scared, but she knew it was all for the team, even if she didn't win. I watched last week's podcast come to full light within those matches. The girls who were down slumped their shoulders, looked like they were going to puke between games. They looked up at their parents in the crowd way more than I've ever seen before, which kind of made me tear up. When the points were down, so were the players. I watched one girl from the other team go from drooping shoulders, arms, eyes, (laughs) to bursts of energy, and back and forth over and over again, simply depending on if they were winning or losing. I would yell out, play to win, girls, come on, you're not defeated, this isn't over. Oh, so many times it became a song in my head, and I thought of all of you who listen, praying you had had a victorious week. Now, if you didn't listen to that episode, please go back, look for playing defeated, and take a listen. So I wanted to piggyback on that episode this week. The courts where we played were at the beautiful Gustavus campus in St. Peter, Minnesota. There were three courts on each side of the stadium. They call it a bubble. It's an inflated dome, and it's absolutely beautiful. The spectators sit above the courts. There's hardly a bad seat in the house. And like I said, the girls were very nervous taking to the court. It almost made the air seem anxious. (laughs) Parents rarely sat for more than five minutes before they were on their feet, pacing, leaning on the railing, and then back in their chairs. And I have to say, it was one of the funnest days that I've ever had. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And one of the things that I really enjoyed the most was to watch human behavior at work. Like I said, body language was really drastic if the player was down a few points or on the way to a comeback. But I want to tell you about this one girl in particular. She's a sophomore who always plays second doubles. She and her partner, if they aren't undefeated, they're very close. They may have lost to our nemesis every other time, but other than that, they are a great team. And they dominated in the semifinals. 
But when it came to the sectional final match, the coach, like I said, mixed things up quite a bit. And our number one singles player was expected to win her match. So the coaches stacked the doubles in hopes to win our three doubles matches, putting us at the four wins that we needed to win sectionals and putting us towards state. Well, that meant breaking up those doubles matches and putting them in singles matches. So the young girl played four singles. She hasn't played a singles match since junior high, and even then it was early in junior high. She is through and through a doubles player, and she's great at it. Oh, and I should mention, she had just come off of a two-hour doubles match to win the semifinals, and here her match was starting. She was tired. But point after point, she began to win game after game. Everyone was shocked, cheering as loud as they possibly could, yelling out tons of accolades. I couldn't stop watching her. She was making her opponent, who was used to beating our regular four singles girl, play defeated. And I hated seeing it because, you know, I just do. I hate seeing anyone play defeated. But from a competitive standpoint, I was in awe. This sophomore, tired doubles player, was killing it on court and was completely defeating her opponent. She easily won the first set. And at a score of 5-1 in her favor, she was about to win the second set, which would win the match. At that point, I decided to gather all the girls that were not playing and said, Girls, go watch court number three. Your teammate is about to win this match. A match coach had not intended to win. She's going to need a huge cheering squad. She's doing amazing. Now, you would have thought that I threw dirt in these girls' faces. They were really mad at me. They shouted at me, Don't say that. Well, what? Well, don't say what? They said, don't say she's going to win. You just jinked her. Ah, thanks a lot. Oh, my goodness. I sadly walked back to my seat. When I got there, I told my husband, well, the team's now mad at me because I predicted a win for court three. I mean, one more point and she wins the set. Well, then the score turned to 5-2. I said, well, goodness gracious, it's not like she heard me tell the the kids to get ready to cheer. When the scoreboard turned 5-3, I started getting glares from the other girls. When the scoreboard turned 5-4, the cheering squad dispersed, trying to pretend that she wouldn't win, you know, to reverse the curse that I'd put on her. (laughs) Insert my eye roll here. Eventually, the score was tied at 5-5, and the poor girl had lost steam. The players get a quick drink break when the score is odd when you add them together. So when it was 5-6, our player down, she plopped on her chair to chug a Gatorade. At this point, it was time for the coach to come over. The poor girl ended up losing that match, putting them in a tiebreaker where she did eventually lose altogether. She was so sore, so scared, and to some degree inexperienced in singles. I did not win favor with the team that day. Which brings me to my point. How much weight do our words really have on a person? Now, teachers are taught to phrase things in the positive in order to get kids to do their best work. Too many negative words and a child begins to shut down and no longer listens. Now, for example, if I were telling a child, you can sit in your seat or stay after class. That's better than saying, you can't wander the room or you'll stay after class. The simple negative phrasing processes differently in a child than the positive choice they can make. Plus, when words are positive, it kind of dictates your tone. Your tone becomes more positive. Now try it. When you say the phrase, you can have dessert on the weekend. You might sound pleasant when you say it. Try it. You can have dessert on the weekend. Now say, you can't have dessert tonight. See, your tone begins to change because you said a negative phrase over a positive one. You can't have dessert tonight. Plus, every one of us wants to hear that we can have dessert on the weekends, right? So when a player hits the ball out of bounds or misses a shot, we obviously don't yell, way to go, doofus. 
I can't believe you missed that. No, we know how inappropriate that would be and how counterproductive it would be. Instead, we say, you can do it. You'll get the next one. It becomes natural in the sporting realm. We're all great cheerleaders there, right? But what about in your home? What about at your job? What kind of cheerleader are you there? When things don't go as they should, what kind of words come out of your mouth? And hey, I'm not just talking about how you speak to your kids or your spouse or your coworkers. I'm also speaking to how you speak to yourself. Have you ever worked really hard on something only for it to fall apart? I love decorating cakes for my kids' birthday, but I really only love it when they turn out good. (laughs) When it's a flop, you might hear me in the kitchen saying things like, You suck at this. Why do you ever think you can do cakes this way? What made you even attempt anything creative? You're so lame. Which, gone unchecked, I proceed to say things like, You are not creative. You have no skills. Things never work out for me. Complete lies. Now, I'm no pro, but I've done pretty good on, I don't know, 70, 75% of the cakes that I've attempted. So to tell myself that I'm no good, that nothing ever turns out, (laughs) it's just a downright lie. As I'd have to admit that a few of them actually do turn out pretty great, especially for a person who isn't a pro and who supposedly sucks at all things, right? And what happens when we actually begin to believe the words that we say to ourselves or the things that other people say to us? We'll shut down, right? We'll stop trying. We'll give up things that we previously loved. Well, maybe it's not cake decorating for you or sports or anything remotely on that level. But for you, you've been told you're not good enough by more than one person. You've been insulted by such a wide variety of people that you can no longer believe any differently. So when you have the slightest mess up, the devil takes his chance to remind you of all the things that you've been told. Ever felt like it's on a loop? Like in the movies, these negative words spoken to you just keep popping up, getting louder and louder until you begin to play defeated because you've been defeated with words? Can I just say I hate that? I do not like it at all. Now I know I'm using negative words here. I wish I could look you in the face, though, and your eyes and remind you of how wonderfully you were made by Jesus. I wish I could tell you how much you're loved and how mistakes do not define you. You can pick yourself back up and start over. I wish I could utilize those between matches times in your life and be a positive coach in your corner. I've often said I'd love that job. If the coaches wanted to make me the official cheerer upper, I could come out and pump the girls up when they're losing their matches. Of course, I'd be no help with what moves they should do or how they should swing the racket or what techniques they should do. But I could look you in the eye and remind you of how amazing you are and the great potential that lies ahead of you. Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but hard words stir up anger. Now this goes for self-talk too. Of course it hurts when someone speaks harsh words to us, but what does it do to our souls when we speak those words to ourselves in our minds or even out loud? Proverbs 15.4 say gentle words bring life and health. A deceitful tongue crushes the spirit. Many times when people spew hatred towards us, it is lies that they throw. And again, I'm going to take it back to self-talk. Many times we tell lies about ourselves to ourselves. Proverbs 18.4 says a person's words can be life-giving water. Words of true wisdom are as refreshing as a bubbling brook. And this is true not only in sports, but in our life in general. In the very few times that I have heard my children insult a sibling, I have pulled that child aside and reminded them that Satan will use their words even after they have apologized. That when their sibling is in their room in the quiet of the night and they begin to feel bad about themselves about this or that or anything else, 
It will be their words that Satan uses to torment them. You know what I'm talking about, right? Those phrases that you hear over and over in your head when you're at your lowest point. Even if the person has apologized and even if you've forgiven them, those words can come back to haunt you. And I ask my child, do you want your words to be the thing that is used by the enemy toward your sibling when they're at their lowest point? I don't consider myself super wise. I don't even know what made me think of that. But one day God just revealed to me that if I do not guard my speech and keep it completely seasoned with God's salt, I can be an instrument of the devil that could be used in the detriment of another person's mental health. I never, ever want that to happen. Do you? Instead, let my words be the very weapon they can use when they go into battle of the mind. When the lights are off and they are alone with their thoughts, let my words be the ones they repeat. The words that are full of grace, seasoned with salt and uplifting. Let my voice ring out that reminds them that they are children of God, loved by Him. And if I want that, I must begin to speak that. I have to change the way I speak to others. Let my words be full of grace and seasoned with salt, like Colossians 4, 6 tells me. Let the word of Christ dwell in me richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, as it says in Colossians three sixteen. And I have to remember to do that for myself. I have to make sure that I'm speaking wisely to myself and not lies. The more we speak life-giving words to people, the more we become like water to a plant. And this goes 100% to the self-talk you're giving yourself. Now, I don't always feel like it's necessary that we have to wake up in the morning and give ourselves motivational speeches. I mean, you can do that if it works for you. But I do think that we need to be mindful of what we're telling ourselves every time something doesn't go the way we have planned. We've all heard the saying, we are our own worst critic. But listen, you were created in the image of God. So when you begin to speak negatively towards yourself, you're speaking about a child of God. Let that resonate in your soul for a moment. Sometimes I think it's so easy for us to recognize that we should not put others down. We should not tear them down or belittle them and insult them. But we oftentimes forget that we do that very thing when we do it to ourselves as well. And we are hurting far more than we are helping. Sometimes my children will get upset and they'll say things like, I'm so stupid or I can't do anything right. And I will get on to them like as if they had insulted one of their siblings. I will say, do not talk about my daughter like that. Or do not say such horrible things about my son like that. (laughs) I want them to know that they can't speak to themselves the way I do not allow them to speak to their siblings. Matthew 12, 34 and 35 gives us a great jumping off point for how we can begin to change our language toward other people and towards ourselves. He says that it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. The good person out of their good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Basically, what's in us is what's going to come out. Out of the goodness of the heart comes good things, and out of the evilness of our heart comes the evil things. So if we truly want to know how to change our words and our thought process, we can begin with where our heart lies. I say this often with each episode of the podcast, but your relationship with Jesus is your most important relationship. You learn more about Jesus through reading your word and applying it, and you grow further by praying, asking God to lead you, and then following that lead. No matter where you are with your relationship with Jesus, you still have further to go. You still have not arrived. Now, I know that's a shock to some of us, (laughs) but in reality, since we are still on earth, we still have growth to be had. And if your mouth is spewing hateful and negative words, you have some growing to do. And guess what? That's okay. 
I'm so glad you're listening today because today it's a great day to start transforming our words. I don't want to stretch the episode too terribly long, which is hard since there are about 300 books out there written on this topic. You can check out my show notes for some recommendations that I might have. But I want to give you a quick couple of disclosures as we pursue letting our words have a a powerful impact for the good. Number one, if your heart isn't in it, the words are going to be empty. Pray and ask God to change your heart so that out of the heart, your words will overflow. Two, tone is important. You can change your volume or even your words, but if your tone is still negative, so will the message that you're trying to send. Three, there will be times you do have to say, no, stop, don't. (laughs) Warning people of danger is an urgent manner. May seems like negative words sometimes, but the more you love, the more those receiving your warnings or negative words, the more they're going to see that it is done with love that's backing it. Number four, you aren't going to be perfect. Give yourself grace. Ask for forgiveness and fill the other person with more positives to counteract the negatives. They, whoever they are, uh, say that for every negative encounter, there should be a minimum of five positive ones to counterbalance the effects of the first. We know we are going to say negative things. We know things will slip out. Just cover them with love. The Bible says that love covers a multitude of sins. Five, to piggyback on number four, there are some negatives that won't be wiped out. When a parent or a spouse says something extra cutting, all the positives in the world may not wipe out that memory. But with the power of God, all things are possible. So please just pray. Pray for the person that you've hurt if you are the one that said the words. Pray for your own heart. There are things said to me in my past that have been horrible, and I have a choice. I can let it be an echo in my mind, or I can give it to God. It's funny how anytime I feel down, those words come to mind. Words that say, I never wanted you. You were my biggest mistake of my life. And in a moment, in those moments, especially the moments where I feel unwanted, like I feel like a burden, Satan uses those words that were spoken to me over 25 years ago. But it is my choice what I do with those words. I must choose not to let Satan speak to me, a child of God, that way. That is the moment I can either choose to believe those words, relive the hurt of them, or I can give them over to God for the umpteenth time and tell myself that what God says about me, that I am loved, that I was bought by with the price, that I am wanted by him. And if I was the only one on earth, Jesus would have found it worth dying on that cross for me. I mean that much to him. And listener, so do you. You are loved. You were bought with a high price. You were wanted by him. You are wanted by him. And if you were the only one on earth, Jesus would have found it worth dying on that cross for you because you mean that much to him. Bill Curry, who played 10 seasons in the NFL from 1965 to 1974, says one of the most motivational speeches he ever heard was in his first year in the league with the Green Bay Packers. Now, this story is for my husband, Dave. He loves the Green Bay Packers. The team was being humiliated by the Detroit Lions. He said it was the only team that was not intimidated by the Packers that year. When halftime came, Coach Lombardi let the team sit in silence. They sat there until there were just seconds remaining, and they had to take the field. He finally looks at his players and said, Men, we are the Green Bay Packers. Curry said that with those seven words, a new team emerged from the locker room and won the game 31-21. to Sometimes we have to be reminded of who we are and whose we are. 
We are children of God. We belong to the Lord. Listeners, listen to this. We are children of the Lord's. When we came to accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we entered into a family. And just like we don't let our children insult other members of our family, we should apply that to the body of Christ as well. And that includes ourselves. When you put yourself down, you're putting down a child of God. When you put others down, you are putting down a person who the Lord loves. It's worth repeating, and maybe you should even say it out loud. I am a child of God. And just like those Green Bay Packers went out onto the field and won that game, we can go back out into the world and win this thing called life because we know who we belong to. We are children of God. Words are powerful. How do you want to use yours? Just remember, Ephesians 4.29 says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. This goes for whoever you're speaking to, including yourself. And in the modified version of Vince Lepardi's words, listeners, we are children of God. Now let's go out there and let's win this game. I'm your host, Ordinary Girl Stevie.